Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 33. Glad to be back with you on the program. Took a little break because of the holiday weekend, but we're back. And I think I've got a good program for you. It's actually a user-generated episode. So remember, send me those requests, and maybe yours will become a podcast. I can't do them all. Uh, some of them I might try to cover in, a, in one episode, maybe two or three at a time. But this one I thought was, was pretty interesting uh, because it, it covers uh, one of the most important figures in in libertarian movement, and that's Murray Rothbard. And so this comes from uh, Ryan Swan, and he wanted me to cover Murray Rothbard's position on Martin Van Buren, and I'll have to do that at a later time. If you haven't done so, you can go out and get my free course on uh, the 10 worst and 10 best presidents. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's out there, and of course I cover Martin Van Buren in that. Uh, you can go to learntruehistory.com and get that as well. So uh, go ahead and pick that up. But I will do a podcast on, Mer- on uh, Martin Van Buren. But um, I wanted to focus on Murray Rothbard's other point in this particular uh, request. And that was uh, Murray Rothbard had written uh, an obituary for Che Guevara after Guevara died. And he wanted me to put that in context because, you know, Guevara is an awful guy. But when Guevara died, a lot of people talked about, a lot of libertarians in particular, talked about this was a sad event. Uh, so I want to talk about foreign policy because that's the heart of the issue. It's very hard for us to look back at that particular event and say, uh, yeah, Che Guevara is a good guy. No, he wasn't a good guy. He was an awful guy and someone that I don't think we should celebrate. But there is one particular part of his ideology that made him attractive to libertarians. And so I actually want to start with this conversation uh, about this idea of libertarianism and conservatism. I've often been asked, are you a libertarian? Are you a conservative? And my traditional response to that uh, has been that I believe in the American tradition. In fact, I used to call myself an American traditionalist. And so what is that? Well, the American tradition, to me, boils down to two things. In foreign policy, you believe in non-intervention. And in domestic policy, you believe in federalism. Because if you believe in those two things, you satisfy, I think, the core principles of the founding generation. And so when I say non-intervention, if you look at American foreign policy up until the 1860s, generally Americans believed in a non-interventionist foreign policy. Now, that didn't mean they, they were against expansion. I mean, you look at Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase, 
or uh, James Madison and acquiring uh, the uh, West West Florida or uh, the Adams O'Neill Treaty uh, with James Monroe and picking up the rest of Florida, East Florida. And then you look at uh, moving on, you've got Texas and the Mexican Cession, the Gadsden Purchase. So Americans, of course, did expand. Uh, but it wasn't an interventionist foreign policy, meaning we weren't getting involved in Europe. And that's where the shift occurs, really beginning in the 1860s. And uh, there was a, a push at one point, beginning the 1860s, to carry this fervor that had been developed during the war between the states outside of that. And uh, there was actually a very interesting episode where Americans were interested in Crete, Cretan independence uh, in the 1860s. And that became part of this Reconstruction push, uh, which expanded our, our purview, our foreign policy purview, outside of what it had always been, outside the bounds of what it had been. We became interventionist. We became aggressive abroad. And so the founding tradition, which you find not just in the founding generation, but moving forward, and several secretaries of state and also several presidents, they mention this. I believe that America should focus on itself, be a peaceful trading partner with the world, and uh, we should stay out of Europe. And that was generally the position that American presidents articulated all the way up until the 1860s. And as far as federalism, I mean, if you look at the founding generation, that, that was for most of them, the majority, the core of the Union. So they believed in a limited central government, even if the state governments could be more active. And if you look at the ratification debates, that's generally what they were concerned about. Were the states going to be emasculated by the Constitution? What could the states do? What could the general government do? And so a lot of them were fine with a very active state government, in certain issues, but they did not want the federal government being involved because having Massachusetts govern South Carolina or vice versa was not going to be good for either Massachusetts or South Carolina. And so that's where I think the, you know, the founding generation was correct in this belief in federalism. If we just believed in federalism today, a lot of our issues, as I've already talked about this, a lot of our issues would not be as problematic because the state of Oklahoma or the state of Alabama or the state of Massachusetts or the state of California or the state of Virginia or the state of North Dakota or Idaho, they could handle most of these problems that we think are quote-unquote national problems when they're really not because they're not constitutional at all. So when people ask me, are you a libertarian conservative, I, that's my response. Well, I believe in the American tradition. So if you say, I mean, if, if you want to pin me down on an ideology, I, I really can't do it because uh, that would um, that would be difficult to do. Now, as far as the central government goes, I firmly believe that the central government is doing vastly unconstitutional things. And in a national position, when nationalist scope, we're going to say we're going to have a national government, then I would be I would say, well, then, uh, you know, less government is a lot better. Uh, and in fact, most of the government is a lot better. And if the national government is going to be supreme in everything, well, then you have to believe in private property. And you should let the free market and private individuals handle things, which is a libertarian position. Because I don't want some other people 
in some other state with different values, customs, culture, etc., dominating my state. And so the best thing you would have would be a libertarian position on domestic policy in that way. And, of course, the libertarians have become non-interventionists. So in foreign policy, uh, I would agree with that. But it hasn't always been just libertarians who believe that. And I think that's, that's what I want to talk about today in foreign policy. And I do agree with, with Ron Paul that foreign policy really sets up domestic policy, particularly today. And I think in many ways it always has. It's always been important to understand that if your foreign policy is aggressive abroad, you're going to have a disaster of a domestic policy because government will not just stop with a foreign policy if it's expanding power. It'll, it'll eventually expand into your domestic policy as well. So you, you have to have a sound foreign policy to have a sound domestic policy. And when we go out and we talk about federal spending on domestic programs, which are unconstitutional and bankrupting the United States, are unconstitutional, or not really unconstitutional, but aggressive foreign policy is also bankrupting the United States. So if we're going to want a sound currency, well, then you have to have a sound foreign policy and a sound domestic policy. And that's something that's important to understand when you look at how do we measure government and what government should do. So Mr. Swan sent this email, and he put this obituary in there for Che Guevara, and I'm going to read part of it. Um, and he said this, What made Che such a heroic figure in our, for our time is that he, more than any other man of our epoch or even of our century, was the living embodiment of the principle of revolution. He, in Murray's writing, said essentially that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. Che, he said, was a notable revolutionary, but not a distinguished administrator or e and even a poor economist. And so this comes down, this is why someone like Murray Rothbard, who had been so opposed, who would be so opposed to Che's economic theories, and I think that if uh, the atrocities that Che Guevara committed uh, are unspeakable, and really you can't support them at all. But it comes down to this, and I wrote a piece about this, and it's on my website, entitled The Stupid Empire. It comes down to the principle of the American empire. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and, and people wrestle with Murray Rothbard uh, becoming a new leftist. He wasn't a new leftist. He was a non-interventionist. And I'm going to talk about something else with Murray Rothbard in a second, an essay he wrote uh, about 20 years ago, uh, where he talked about his life in the old right. So Rothbard was able to move between the left and the right because he never really fit into either one of those areas. He was a principled non-interventionist. And he was dedicated to the idea of uh, limited central government. And again, 
that, that comes down to that principle of federalism, though I think Rothbard would go even further in the state governments and everything else. But this idea that there's somehow a left-wing or a right-wing foreign policy uh, is missing the point that there's an American foreign policy, a traditional American foreign policy that is not left or right, it's non-interventionist. And at various times in American history, you had people on the left or the right espousing this particular position. And so as a non-interventionist, you're going to float between those ideologies, left or right, depending on who's supporting your non-interventionist foreign policy. Uh, and this is why, you know, when, when Ron Paul was in the Congress, it, it seemed that way. He would sometimes side, saddle up with the lefties because of foreign policy. And he didn't agree with the neoconservative foreign policy, which was very interventionist. And someone like Hillary Clinton has a – neoconservative is really the wrong term here. It's progressive. It's a progressive foreign policy, an interventionist foreign policy, an imperial foreign policy. Now, the reason why America is a stupid empire is because if you go back and you look through history and you look at empires, most empires throughout history – in fact, the United States is unique in this way – never really wanted the conquered to, lo- to, to love them. They wanted the conquered to submit and to accept the dominant culture of the conqueror. And so if you go back and you look at the Athenians, the Athenians expected people to like Athens because Athens was great, but if you didn't, they would just destroy you. And you had to accept their dominance. Uh, the the uh, I mean, if you look at uh, Alexander the Great's empire, it was a little different. He adopted the customs because he didn't have the manpower to hold Persia, so he became more Persian. But he also encouraged Greeks to settle in the old Persian empire and make it more Greek. And eventually that would happen in certain parts of the old uh, empire. If you look at Asia Minor and you look at Egypt, it became more Greek. If you look at the Romans, the Romans forced you to submit. You, didn't, you just became Roman, and if you didn't want to be Roman, they killed you. Uh, same thing with the British or the French or the Spanish, moving forward in these European empires. The United States doesn't do that. If they're, gonna, they're kind of a confused imperialist. They want you to love the United States, and if you don't, oh well. Uh, that's okay, too. And so that gets us into trouble over time because that, that uh, stupid policy of intervention, uh, and if you're going to be an empire, you have to act like one. The United States doesn't. And I'm not, I'm not advocating acting like an empire, but uh, this is the problem with American foreign policy. They're an empire, but they don't want to be an empire. There's no other empire in history that wanted the conquered to love the conqueror, and if you didn't, there was no retribution. So the United States' tentacles, right, have stretched everywhere. South America, Central America, uh, the Caribbean, uh, Asia. The only place they really didn't have as much input uh, in the 19th century was Africa because it, already, it was already carved up. Uh, but now we're involved, and of course now we're involved in Africa, we're involved in Europe. So we have this stupid empire, and that stupid empire has created a mess for the United States, having military bases in 100 countries around the world, over 100 countries. 
a very expensive military that the United States is broke and really can't afford. And of course, it involves American men and women in foreign wars that are not to our advantage. And it creates blowback. And so this is why you don't have an interventionist foreign policy. And so when Rothbard talked about Guevara, what he's saying there is that the reason Guevara was fine in one way is because he was opposed to American imperialism. Cuba, I've already done a podcast on Cuba, it's episode six. Cuba was the target of American imperialism for a long period of time. And uh, it became part of the United States in 1898 in an imperialistic war, the Spanish-American War. And then we gave it back with strings attached. This is the thing. Oh, we're so great. We're going to liberate you. but we're And here's your island back. Oh, but there's that thing called the Platt Amendment. And if we want to intervene in your country, we can do it anytime we want to. That's being the stupid empire. If you're going to do that, just hold it as a colony. But that's not what the United States does. And so it's interesting, you know, Rothbard could float between these people who are non-interventionist. And so I like to point out that one of the missed parts of American history is that non-interventionist strain of American foreign policy that uh, you can find quite extensively in many of the old states' rights, quote-unquote states' rights individuals from the antebellum period through the postbellum period. And a lot of them are Southern. And I think one of the most interesting, of course, is John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun opposed the Mexican War because he thought it was going to unjustly expand the executive branch and unconstitutionally expand the powers of the executive branch. And he was right about that. I mean, he pointed out James K. Polk was doing this, uh, engaging in this war unconstitutionally. And he feared what was going to happen. Of course, he was also worried about the addition of all that territory and what that would do to the United States. He feared what was going to happen because of that. So he was a a non-interventionist. And it was often funny. when I remember being an undergraduate and I wrote a paper about the Mexican War. And uh, one of the individuals who's critiquing it said, well, I mean, this war is all about the slave power. It's a common rhetorical claim that the North made at the time. And my retort to that has always been, well, what about John C. Calhoun? Here's the guy that was considered to be the spokesman for the quote-unquote slave power, but he's against the war. So how is this war really for the slave power? It was really about California. That's what James K. Polk wanted more than anything else. He didn't come out and say that, but he wanted California. Now, Polk was also a Southerner. So what he wanted, though, was an empire on the Pacific. That's what he called it. And, of course, as you move forward, you get intervention in the Pacific after we acquire California and Oregon, both acquired during the Polk administration. So Calhoun was against it. Then you move forward in time, and you find uh, that there were Southerners who supported expansion, of course. There were Southerners who supported imperialism. But when you get into the 20th century, one of the more interesting figures in the 20th century, I think, um, who's often misunderstood is J. William Fulbright, whose Arrogance of Power, published in 1966, was really a Jeffersonian critique of puritanical American exceptionalism. 
And Fulbright, and I'm paraphrasing here, said that you know when American when American becomes imperial, it loses its soul. And he he initially favored uh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. In fact, sponsored it, which led to more American involvement in Vietnam. But then he regretted that decision because he saw what was going to come out of that, which was a disaster for American foreign policy. And he had a great quote, and he said. Uh, a preemptive war in defense of freedom would surely destroy freedom because one simply cannot engage in barbarous action without becoming a barbarian because one cannot defend human values by calculated and unprovoked violence without doing mortal damage to the values one is trying to defend. If you ever have a chance, I would read The Arrogance of Power. It's, it's very good. And of course, Fulbright was uh, Bill Clinton's political mentor, but Bill Clinton didn't follow his ideas in foreign policy. And Fulbright was a Southern conservative uh, in many ways. So Rothbard would have agreed with Fulbright. Rothbard and Fulbright, some people saw Fulbright as a guy on the left. So you, you have this in the 1960s, you know, you get this very, you, you get the expansion of the American Empire during the Cold War. And so Rothbard was kind of associated with the left because the left at times was anti-Cold War. But he wasn't a pinko. He wasn't a commie. Some of these people that were opposing American foreign policy were secretly communists. That wasn't Rothbard. To him, the, the Cold War, or at least American imperialism in this period of time, American uh, intervention, was silly. And there were a lot of people on the old right who thought that. So back in 1994... I want to say it was 1994, Rothbard had written an essay entitled My Life in the Old Right. And he talks about in 1948, he supported Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats. Now, a lot of people would find that to be very interesting because, of course, the Dixiecrats are often portrayed as this racist, uh, you know, hateful, spiteful group of people who just hated everybody. They hated. We use that term hate. They hated Rothbard was a New York Jew, and he's supporting these Dixiecrats. Why? Because he saw it for what it was. He wanted to have a coalition of Midwestern Republicans who tended to be, I mean, people like uh, uh, Robert Taft, right? They tended to be non-interventionist and against the New Deal. And he thought that the Dixiecrats, being that they were uh, interested in federalism and in many ways non-intervention, that you could forge this coalition between Midwestern Republicans and uh, Southern Democrats and create a new, very conservative American party that believed in non-intervention and federalism. So if you get down to it, brass tacks, that's what's going on there. He's supporting the American tradition. So again, this goes back to my initial point about who I am. People have asked me, are you libertarian conservative? I'm an American traditionalist, and that tradition is non-intervention and federalism. And I think that's the whole key to understanding, you know, Rothbard, and he was just consistent in his idea of supporting non-intervention. It didn't matter if you were on the left or you were on the right. If you were opposed to the American empire, he was going to support you in a way. Now, he also criticized many of the commies who were running around the Soviet Union and China at the time. And so Guevara was different because Guevara, as he said, was a professional revolutionary trying to upset the order 
uh, in South America, which many people looking back at it, if you study Latin American history, uh, the United States is often criticized and has done tremendous damage to many Latin American countries through intervention over time because they became our colonies. Not, not de jure, but de facto. American economic or uh, you know, military colonies. And so that's why someone like Che Guevara could be supported by people who would be opposed to many of his uh, ideas, uh, and I would say probably his, his pension to violence. Uh, Guevara was not a good guy at all. And I personally can't support Che Guevara, but I think this is where you're getting into where people would say, well, I mean, at least he was opposed to the American empire because the American empire was bad news for the people of Latin America. So when we talk about foreign policy, I mean, I think we need to understand, and this is why I've done a couple of podcasts on Donald Trump, why I think Donald Trump's speech was very important. It's not perfect. It's not Ron Paul in terms of foreign policy, but it's better than Hillary Clinton any day of the week. It's better than any of the other group of people running around on the stage, save Rand Paul, uh, who were coming up with a very interventionist foreign policy. Now, I know people would say Ted Cruz had a much more non-interventionist foreign policy, and I think that's true to an extent, but I think he was also much more interested in intervention than than, uh, Donald Trump has articulated in his foreign policy message. So foreign policy sets everything up, whether it's trade, whether it's immigration, whether it's domestic spending. If you have a bad foreign policy, you're going to have a bad domestic policy as well. And so I think that when we look at candidates, particularly presidential candidates, that should be the first criteria. What, what is their foreign policy? If their foreign policy is intervention, they're going to be awful because that's going to lead to a bigger and bigger central government. So for those of you that have asked, I mean, I've had this you know, Twitter, social media, what are you? Are you, uh, you seem to be more of a pedio uh, conservative. Well, I mean, I've, I've been called that. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, people have called me a paleo-libertarian, but I just say an American traditionalist. I believe in federalism and non-intervention. And I think that gets to the core of what the American tradition really was for much of its early history. Non-interventionist and a belief in federalism. Not nationalism, but federalism. And so this is, you know, again, I've... I've done a podcast on Trump and federalism. You know, is he going to be a federalist? Not not uh, nationalist federalist, but is he going to believe in the federal republic? I'm not certain. I don't know. He's made statements before that sound like he might believe in that. Uh, there have been some indications that he might believe in that. Uh, do I think he's going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Will Trump abuse power? Absolutely. If he's elected president. But we know Hillary Clinton will. There, there's no... There's no doubt that Hillary Clinton is going to abuse power and that we're going to get more wars and everything else. I mean, this is it's a guarantee with Hillary Clinton. So you'd like to think that the, the least of the worst in that way, in terms of in, when you look at foreign policy, would be the better choice. So when people ask you, you know, what do you believe in? 
I mean, you can say things like, I believe in the free market, I believe in private property. I mean, all that stuff's true. It's good. Of course, we really don't have private property anymore. If you look at the federal court system and what it said, you don't, you don't have private property. They can determine what you can do with your property any day of the week. So uh, you have to then start saying, okay, well, how can, we, uh, how can we undermine that? And it comes down to a belief in federalism, a belief in non-intervention foreign policy. And if we could have that position, if we could just get candidates at the state level, at the local level, and of course at the federal level, to believe in non-intervention and to believe in federalism, the United States would be a much better place in terms of what libertarians often espouse, which is freedom and private property and liberty. Because those things would be protected by that alone. Now, doesn't mean the states can't abuse power. Of course they can. Doesn't mean the local government can't abuse power. Of course it can. But as I've said, and think locally, act locally, you have more control over those people than you do the federal Leviathan in Washington, D.C. And you have more control over your household than you do over anything else. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.